Good morning, church. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Christian Moscoso, and I'm here to, you know, I'm one of the, the pastor elders here at Trinity, and it is my honor to preach the word this morning. And so uh, we do have quite a long passage. Uh, so, you know, we're going to go ahead and jump into it. I do want to send the greetings from uh, Tim and Kim, who are actually, I think, probably traveling right now on their way home. So uh, I don't know about you guys, but I've missed them. You've heard me preach three Sundays in a row, so I'm sure you've missed them too. Uh, <laughs> but they will be here with us soon. So you may, you know, keep them in your prayers as they, tra- as they traveled today. Um, Anyways, today we're going to look at chapters 19 and 20 of 1 Samuel. We have been going through a series in the book of 1 Samuel, which is, uh, I think more and more you will notice how foundational the story of 1 and 2 Samuel is to the story of the Bible. And today uh, we go to, uh, to a passage that actually, I think starting last week we saw the story turn a little bit. The story of Saul and David took a bit of a sharp turn. Um, but before we get into, like, into the passage, before we read the passage together, I want us to look at, I, I want to I say something. I want to say here at Trinity, we absolutely love the Word of God. It is our conviction that this very book, the one right here, the one sitting on your lap or on your phone, is the inspired Word of God. We believe what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy uh, 3, 16 and 17, when he said, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That is true of every passage that you can think of. That is true of today's passage, that God will use this passage to bring um, reproof, correction, training, uh, or comfort to us as believers. Now, one of the reasons that the Bible gives us comfort is the fact that the Bible is a very real book. By that, I mean it's very realistic in the way that it talks about things. One of the reasons uh, that I feel this way is that the Bible talks in a way or, or, or describes things in a way that ring true with our experience, with our human experience. And as I mentioned last week, the Bible doesn't just pretend life is easy. As a matter of fact, uh, it doesn't ignore or make light of hardship. It even, uh, even the way it paints our heroes, you know, like David, one of the heroes of Scripture that we're going to be talking about today, even the way that it paints them is very real, very honest, and relatable. It shows us the highs of our heroes, but it also shows us their lows. It doesn't shrink back from telling us their struggles and their sins. It was only two chapters ago that we saw David at his highest. David, a brave boy that came against the champion of the Philistines, the one that was threatening the people of God. And David, because of the faith that he had in God, was able to slay the giant and deliver the people of Israel. David is the anointed of God. He is the righteous and anointed king by God who, is, who has delivered the people of Israel time and again. And he will do that again in the future. But today, we will see a part of David's life that we can relate to. I don't know about you, but I've never slayed a lion, a bear, or a giant. But the things that that David does today, that I can relate to. You see, last week we looked at chapter 18, where Saul, the king, after seeing the success of David, felt threatened by David's success. So much so that he tried to kill David three times in one chapter. Throughout that chapter, David appears to be okay, 
Uh, he is confused by Saul's behavior because it makes no sense, but he continues to trust the Lord. Fast forward to today's passage, chapters 19 and 20, and we will see how even David, the deliverer of Israel, when faced with persecution and trials, has moments of weakness. Today we will see a side of David that we can all relate to. A David who is weak. A David that feels threatened and scared. A David that in the face of hardship panics and seems to forget about God's delivering power that he just experienced. In these two chapters, we will continue to see a couple of the other characters. We will see how Jonathan and Saul continue to illustrate the, the ways of righteousness and the ways of the wicked. And so in order to look at this, how about we read the passage together? I want us to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 19. And here, I want you to see that Jonathan is a faithful friend to David. He is also an advocate before the king. Verses 1 through 7 say this, it says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning, stay in a secret place, and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. That is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your revealed word. Father, we thank you for this inspired word that you have given us that serves us today, Lord, uh, to fix our eyes on you, to hear from you. Father, we humbly submit to your word this morning, and we ask, Holy Spirit, would you please speak to our hearts through it? Would you please renew our minds? Would you please cleanse our hearts as we hear your word? Father, I pray that if there's anything that I would say that does not align with the truth of Scripture, Lord, I pray that it would fall down and be forgotten. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us as a church, a church, Lord, with discernment, a church that is able to hear your word and see what comes from you through the mouth of whoever is preaching, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Thank you for your kindness, we pray. Amen. Amen. So here, uh, the, st the, the story resumes. And at the beginning of this chapter, we see once again how Saul's continued jealousy of David leads yet to another uh, attempted murder. In the last chapter, you may remember, Saul was being subtle. He had devised a plan to have David marry his daughter, hoping that by asking for a high, you know, a bride prize, which was a bouquet of foreskins, as we said last week, would lead to David's death. Saul's hope was that as David went to fight the Philistine, the Philistines would take care of David. Right? In that way, he would get what he wanted, and his name would remain clean. In this chapter, though, Saul is not being subtle anymore. He straight up tells Jonathan and his servants his plans to murder David. Now, Jonathan, as you can imagine, finds himself in a really awkward place. He has to choose between his dad and his best friend. But more than that, he has to choose between what is convenient and what is right. 
Because you see, David was actually a threat to Jonathan's kingship. Jonathan was a king in waiting, and David had been anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. So what is Jonathan going to do? Is he going to join Saul, his father, in opposing the anointed of the Lord, or will he bow down to the anointed of the Lord? In the flesh, Jonathan had a pretty strong motive to want David dead. For this reason, Jonathan's response to, to his dad's suggestion is very important for us to understand as believers. In his response, you'll see that Jonathan shows us how we should respond to those who are at odds with God's anointed. You see, the image the Bible is painting here of Jonathan is once again of a humble and godly man who trusts the Lord. This man is so godly that he is willing to put his own interests aside, as we should as the followers of Jesus Christ. Now, when Jonathan hears the, Saul's, uh, the, the plans of Saul, I'm sorry, Jonathan reasons with Saul, and he tries to persuade Saul by looking at the situation from a biblical perspective. You'll notice that first, Jonathan points out to Saul the fact that by killing David, uh, who, who had done nothing wrong, Saul would be in sin. Saul is thinking of what is convenient. Jonathan is thinking of what is right. And so you see how Jonathan gently prompts Saul, and he points him to the sinfulness of his ways of thinking. He uses not only logic, but also biblical language to frame the situation for Saul to see the, the, the wretchedness of his plan. Jonathan then uses the word of God to point out where Saul is wrong. Now then Jonathan not only points out that, that if Saul were to kill David, he would be sinning, but he actually points him to the consequences of that sin. He tells him that if he were to spill innocent blood, um, you know, that if he kills David, he would be spilling innocent blood, which according to the law, carried serious consequences. You see, Jonathan knew his word. And he is leaning on his knowledge of God's word to gently persuade his father. Now, what are two things that we can learn from this? Number one, as believers, we do well to, call, to gently call out the sin of our loved ones and our friends that are opposing the Lord. You see, Jonathan was able to persuade Saul to refrain from sin, at least temporarily. Saul, in the heat of the moment, wanted to kill David, and Jonathan's words calmed him down, and he was able to restrain Saul's sin, like I said, at least for the moment. Church, we too have the ability to restrain sin. We can do that by biblically confronting our friends and family members who are living according to the desires of the flesh and not according to biblical truth. Now, when I wrote this, this was earlier this week. This was before, you know, this famous Friday when, when the Supreme Court, you know, answered or, you know, God used the Supreme Court to answer the prayers of the saints for the last three or four decades we have been praying, you know, for life. We have as a church, you know, standing up for uh, the unborn. And we praise the Lord for answering the prayers of the saints. I am so thankful, so thankful. But church, let us be wise in the way that we talk about this topic. As we said during our summer psalms, this is not a time to gloat. This is not a time to dunk on the lives, dunk on those who disagree with us. But this is a time to humbly praise the Lord for answering our prayers, to humbly remember our calling and live out the gospel that we say we believe. Church, this doesn't mean that we will make everyone happy. 
You have no idea the number of friends I've lost this past week on social media because I praise the Lord for, this, for the decision of the Supreme Court. I try to be careful. I try to be encouraging. I try to be wise. And yet, you have no idea the hostility that I've faced from friends and even from people that, um, that are within the church. My hope is that some of these interactions that will eventually lead to good conversations. But the church, but church, sorry, let us be wise in how we talk to those who disagree with us. Let us be gentle. Let us be loving. Let us point them to truth and not shrink back from biblical truth, but let's do it with wisdom and not with the spirit of this generation, which is just to tell things as they are. Right? Just tell it like it is. That is no biblical gift. Let us be loving. Let us be kind. And I think that Jonathan actually gives us a good model here because he does not shrink back from calling out the sin of his brother, of his father, the king. But he gently uses not only logic, but the word of God to point what is wrong with his way of thinking. You see, when we call out the sin of our neighbor and we point them to God, we have no ability to change the hearts of the people. Only Christ can do that. Our responsibility, however, is to try to persuade. Whether the Holy Spirit uses that to change the heart of the people does not depend on us. It does not depend on our wisdom. It does not depend on our ability. It does not depend on our charisma. It depends solely on God. And our responsibility is to speak truth and to do so in love. The second thing I believe we can learn from this is that we too have a friend that is an advocate before the king. You see, um, David was actually innocent in this instance. David had actually done nothing wrong. He had done nothing that would deserve Saul's wrath. He had done nothing sinful in his relationship with Saul, and yet Saul wanted to kill him. Now, the Bible tells us that we, too, were enemies of a king. Before we were in Christ... The Bible tells us that we were objects of the wrath of the king. In our case, however, the king's wrath against us was actually justified. Our king, though, also has a son, and his son is our advocate before our king. His son is our friend. Unlike Jonathan, Jesus, the son of God, was not acting against the will of the Father, but he was sent by the Father to pay for our sin so that you and I could stand before the Father and become his children. Church, what a loving God we have. But let us keep reading. I want us to keep going, and I want you to see in verses 8 through 17 that though Saul is the enemy of David, Saul is an enemy on a leash. Let's look at verses 8 through, 9, through 17. It says, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear. But he eluded, eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair as its head and covered it with the clothes. 
And, um, and when Saul sent messengers to take David, he said, he is sick. Then Saul, she said, I'm sorry, he is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillows of goat's hair as its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you decided, uh, sorry, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? And we will stop right here. Once again, I want you, um, I want you to see that in verse 9, the Bible tells us that Saul tried to murder David twice. This reveals once again that Saul does not care about God's name. You see, when, when, when Jonathan was trying to, uh, to reason with Saul, what was Saul's response? He said, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. He's using the name of God in vain. He's saying, as the Lord lives, he is swearing to Jonathan that David will not be killed. And what does he do? He turns around and tries to kill him. Saul obviously is a wicked man that does not care about God. Saul at this point has left all pretense behind. He no longer cursed to maintain an appearance of righteousness. He is clearly bent on killing David. He's also a pretty lousy uh, you know, man with a spear. He is 0 for 3 in his attempts to pin David to the wall. Dude needs to find a new weapon. As we said last week, the Lord was with David. And because of that, very, uh, because of that I'm sorry, every single attempt of Saul is foiled. After striking out in his attempts to pin David to the wall, Saul sends messengers to watch David and to bring him so that he may kill him. David at this point is suffering. If you want to hear the depths of his suffering, just read Psalm 59, which was written at this very point. In this instance, I'm sorry, God will use another one of Saul's children to deliver David, his daughter Michael. Michael suggests to David to run away, and she helps him escape through the window. Then she proceeds to pull, out a, to pull a stunt from a 90s movie, and she puts an image on David's bed and a wig on it. She then tells the messengers, David is sick. Saul then tells the messengers to bring David in the bed, because he wants to kill him, only to find out that he has been deceived by his daughter. If we're honest, this whole interaction, this whole section, feels a little bit like a Scooby-Doo episode, doesn't it? It sounds ridiculous. And I believe it is meant to appear ridiculous because the author is highlighting the foolishness of Saul in opposing God's plans. You see, Saul is a dog on a leash. As much as he raves and he explodes in anger against David, he cannot defeat David. Not because of David. Not because David is awesome. Not because David is a guy that has faith in himself. No, no, no. Saul cannot defeat David because the Lord is with David. Hard as he may try, Saul is utterly unable to oppose the Lord's anointed. He can plot, he can try, but he is on a leash and he cannot harm David. The author tells us for the third time that a harmful spirit of the Lord came upon, upon Saul. And we've actually heard this in chapter 16 and then of chapter 18, and we hear it again today. Now, as we know, Saul has made himself an enemy of God. He has actively opposed the Lord's plan. He is now an enemy of God. Now, it is unclear what the exact nature of this spirit is, but the Hebrew word used is ruach, which describes some sort of mental affliction. The spirit, is a remind, the spirit that we see in this passage is a reminder that God is in control of all things, and Saul is not. 
Saul, once again, is a dog on a leash. You see, in the same way, we too have an enemy who is on a leash. We talked about this a little bit last week. But because we have a sovereign father who is in control of all things, our enemies can do nothing to us that is not allowed by God. We do have an enemy. And it's very real. And the Bible tells us that he is like a lion looking for some to devour. And yet, as scary as this sounds, this very lion is in a leash. He has no teeth. We know from Scripture that God works all things according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11 tells us. And Romans 8.28 tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Church, this means that nothing surprises God. There is nothing that catches God off guard. Nothing is beyond His reach or His control. Just as God was with David while he was being persecuted and mistreated by Saul, God is with you if you are one of his children. I want you to hear this. Nothing happens in your life without God allowing it first. And I know this rubs us the wrong way sometimes because you may be thinking, Christian, you don't know what I've gone through. But the reality is that nothing can hit you, nothing can touch you unless God has allowed it. That sounds rough. The reality, this is a source for comfort. Because we know that nothing that has ever happened to us is not redemptive. Nothing that has ever happened to us is purposeless. Notice that when Paul tells us that all things work together for our good, he doesn't say that they all work for our convenience or for our comfort. As I've heard it said, God does not work in the ER. You see, God doesn't just deal with things that were beyond his control and he's trying to fix them up. God, if anything, is like a surgeon with a scalpel. And when he cuts us, he does so with a purpose. With a purpose to heal, with a purpose to sanctify us, for the purpose of making us more like his son, Jesus Christ. Church, for God's children, suffering and trials are never punitive. Notice that Saul's persecution leads David to God. As we'll see right now, David, after he's being persecuted, he runs. He runs from where he is, and where does he go? He goes to where Samuel is. He goes to where the people of God are gathered. So let us keep reading. Now I want us to read verses 18 to 24. And here, once again, we'll see Saul's plans foiled by the power of God. Verse 18 says this, Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Saul at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And he was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When he was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naioth in Ramah. And he went there to Naioth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went, and he, as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he too stripped of his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and laid naked that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? What? <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> So after Saul's repeated attempts on on David's life, uh, David flees and goes to Samuel. 
who is in a, sp- a small place called Nyath. And Nyath is not a fortress. Nyath, Nyath was not a big city. Nyath is actually just a little setem- settlement. Actually, the word Nyath means the place of tents. So it's a little camp. This was the place where the prophets lived. You see, David did not run for a fortress. David did not run um, to, to a place of safety, physical safety. But he ran to where the people of God were. He knew that his fortress was God himself. He found him safe, himself in the safety um, of where people were, surrounded by the people of God, because he knew that God was his fortress. Oh, church, how I hope this would be true of Trinity. How I hope that this place and these people here in this room would be a source of comfort to those who are in distress. May we be a place where people run to in their distress because they know that this is where God is. Now Saul, of course, hears about this. He hears about David's whereabouts and sends messengers to capture David. But to their surprise, when they approached the little settlement, the Spirit of God came upon them, and they began to prophesy. And if we are honest, this is a little bit of a weird story, isn't it? But yet, this story is reminiscent of the story of Balaam, the prophet. Do you guys remember Balaam and his donkey? Um, He, Balaam, was a greedy prophet. And this greedy prophet was paid several times to prophesy and to declare a word of curse against the people of God. But every time he took the money, he agreed, and he went to prophesy. And when he did so, the words that came out of his mouth were a rebuke to the enemies of Israel and a blessing to the people of God. Now, it's not hard to imagine that as they went to capture David and were overcome by the Spirit, the the messengers began speaking words of rebuke and condemnation against Saul and David's enemies. So what does Saul do? After three attempts of sending his messengers, yielding the same results, Saul once again decides to take matters in his own hands. And you see this pattern of of, of Saul trying to take control of things, trying to do his will. Yet again, though, we see Samuel, I mean Saul overestimating his power against God. He foolishly attempts to oppose God here, so he goes to Naoth himself with the clear purpose of murdering David. And as soon as he arrives in Naoth, Saul too begins to prophesy. He is overcome by the Spirit of God who causes Saul to prophesy and to rave to the point that he takes his clothes off and ends up lying naked all day and night. This, you see, was a display of God's power over wicked Saul. God effectively humiliates Saul by making him prophesy and by taking his clothes off. We are not told what Saul says as he prophesies, but scholars believe that he probably confessed the glory of the very God he so despised. Probably he pronounced judgment upon himself and his kingdom. And for a day and night... Saul finds himself lying naked, saying things that were probably went what he desired. Doesn't this display God's glory? Doesn't this remind you of the words of the Hebrew of, of the author of Hebrews who said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? This also reminds me of Psalms 2, verses 4 and 6, when it says that those who oppose the Lord's, the, the Lord's anointed, he who sits in the heavens, laughs 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. And that is what God is doing here to Saul. Church, you and I serve a mighty king. We serve a mighty God who opposes the proud. He also watches over his children. He watches over you and me. The same God who humbled Saul is the same God who watches over you today. No matter how scary life may be, nothing escapes God's control. Now this leads us to chapter 20, which is quite long. <laughs> so I'm going to summarize part of it. What I want us to do is first read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll jump to verse 12 and on. 1 through 4, actually. And here we'll see David at his weakest. Verse 1 says this, it says, Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David uh, vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Let's jump to verse 12. In verse 12, Jonathan says to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. So what happens between verses 4 and 12, just let me tell you, is that David and, and Jonathan come up with a plan. We'll talk about it in just a second. But after their plan, this is what happens. Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not send and disclose it to you? But should I please my father to do you, but should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he was with my father. If I am still alive, show me steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his, uh, by his love for him, for he loved them as he loved his own Saul. So as you can see, after Saul comes to Naoth, David, the same guy who fought lions, the same guy that fought bur uh, bears, I'm sorry, that's my Guatemalan accent coming out, uh, the same kid who's laid Goliath, and delivered the people of God, now panics. As Saul was still probably lying naked and humiliated, David runs to Ramah. He runs to his friend Jonathan, and he asks Jonathan why Saul is trying to kill him. Jonathan appears for the first time to be a little naive, and doesn't think that Saul will kill David. But he tells David, whatever you say, I will do, I will do for you. <clears throat> so in verses 5 through 11, which we skipped, uh, in which I invite you to read at home later, David devises a plan with Jonathan. The plan is pretty simple. David will hide for three days. During those three days, <clears throat> if Saul asks about David, Jonathan will tell him that David went to Bethlehem. So he's asking Jonathan to lie. If Saul is okay with that, they will know David is not in danger. But if he gets angry, they will take it as a sign that David is actually in danger. 
Then in verses 12 through 17, Jonathan makes a covenant with David again. This time, Jonathan is sure that David will be king <clears throat> and that the Lord will destroy his enemies. So Jonathan asks David to have mercy on him and on his descendants. This will be important in the future, and I want you to take note of this because we will see that in a few chapters, David will actually honor his covenant with Jonathan by forgiving Jonathan's son, uh, Mephibosheth. Now, <clears throat> let me ask you a question. Isn't it funny, or sad really, how quick we can be, or how quick we can turn from trust to doubt? Even when God has proven himself to be faithful time and again, to be kind with us, we are so quick to turn from trust to doubt. God literally just delivered David by overcoming Saul and humiliating him. But David doesn't think that's good enough. So he makes his own plan <clears throat> of escape. Let me take some water because I'm about to cough. <clears throat> so David makes his own plan. Let me ask you a question. Isn't that our temptation too? Whenever we're faced by trials, <clears throat> whenever we're faced by opposition, isn't our temptation to make our own plans? We claim to trust God as long as He delivers us when and how we want Him to deliver us. And if He doesn't, we're tempted to make our own plans of deliverance. We look at other things as functional saviors that will ultimately only disappoint us. But let's keep reading the story because like I said, it's a pretty long one. <clears throat> And I want you to see here, in verses 24 to 42, I want you to see that Jonathan became the object of Saul's wrath in order to save David. Verse 24 says this, <clears throat> So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean, surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was still empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found fa uh, favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Je uh, Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? That's weird. Um... For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And he tries to reason with him again. But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that, this was, that, that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David, because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to this boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow behind him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? 
And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then, da then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So Jonathan then confirms what David already knew. Saul was determined to kill David. Jonathan, though, in verse 32, still tries to reason with Saul. Once again, he acts as an advocate for David and asks Saul, why should he be put to death? What has he done? This time, however, his reasoning does not work. It actually angers Saul. And then Saul's anger turns against his son. He hurls the spear at Jonathan and once again misses. I'm telling you, this guy needs a gun, a sword or something because the spear is not his thing. Now, <clears throat> what I want you to notice here is that Jonathan, in order to protect David, made himself the object of Saul's wrath. He took the place of David at the crosshairs. Why did Jonathan do this? For two reasons. First, because he loved David. And because he had made a covenant with him, and a covenant that he is keeping. Number two, he did this because he believed that God's plan was more important than his own life. Oh, church, I pray that we would be that way. That we would not seek our own interests instead of seeking God's plan. You see, while Saul would rather kill than to submit to God's plan, Jonathan would rather die than to oppose God's plan. Even if it was inconvenient to him. Church, Jonathan um, was a friend and an advocate before the king. You know what? We too have an advocate and a friend before the king of the universe, as I mentioned earlier. David had done nothing to deserve Saul's wrath. We, on the other hand, were enemies of God. We too were objects of God's wrath. We were the objects of the wrath of a king. But we too have a friend. We have an advocate before the king. His name is Jesus. He too took our place as the object of the king's right, uh, wrath. Except our king's wrath was a righteous wrath. Jesus did not evade the spear that was hurled at him. At the cross, Jesus received the punishment that you and I rightfully deserved. And he did this because he loved us. And he did this because he too had made a covenant with us. And he is a covenant-keeping friend. Church, the biggest difference here is that Saul was a wicked king who was guided by self-interest. Our king, God of the universe, is not a wicked king. His wrath is not sinful, but righteous. His wrath comes from his justice and from his holiness. Our king is a good and just king. So instead of sweeping our sin under the rug, under the rug, he sent his son so that he would take the punishment that you and I deserve, so that you would bear the wrath that you and I deserved. Why? So that you and I would become children of the king.
At times, when we say this, though, if we're not careful, it may sound like God the Father only loves us because of what Christ did at the cross. As if Jesus had to persuade the Father that we needed to be loved. Church, that, that's not the case. Our God is no Saul. The reality is that what Christ did at the cross on, behalf, on our behalf was because the Father loves us. About this, John Owen said, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on God the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him, is to not believe that He loves you. Church, hear me out this morning. God loves you, and He wants you for Himself. He loves you so much that He sent His only Son to be a Jonathan for us, a faithful friend that would love us and would die for us. Jesus himself said in John 15, Greater love no, uh, has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. As we close this morning, let me say one last thing. David was suffering. In the middle of this story, and let us not lose sight of that, David was in pain. Once again, read Psalm 59 to understand the depth of the suffering that he's going through. Hebrews 11, though, tells us, that, uh, tells us about David's suffering and the suffering of many other heroes of our faith. You see, suffering is part of the Christian walk. One of the great, greatest unkindness that we can do to others when we tell them about Jesus is not to tell them to count the cost. Because you see, suffering is part of the Christian walk. And yet, just like David, we too can persevere. We too are sustained by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me tell you this morning. Or let me, let me, would you allow me this morning? If you are hurting, would you allow me to point you to Jesus this morning? Our mighty Savior, our gentle friend, our advocate before the Father. If you are suffering today, it's not because God has abandoned you. If you are hurting, God is still with you. And He will use this suffering to sanctify you. Once again, Hebrews 11 tells us that David and the other heroes listed in Hebrews 11 were made strong out of their weakness. Are you weak this morning? Fix your eyes on Jesus, that he may strengthen you. Church, would you sing with us this morning in response to the word?